For the past three years, the Science of Reading Star Awards have honored educators who are beacons of light, guiding their classrooms, schools, districts, and most importantly, students through transformations with literacy. Now join us as we honor this year's winners at a special celebration event, which will feature celebrity keynoters and past podcast guests, Mitchell Brookins. Two years ago, one of my students as a school administrator came to me on the playground and he said, Mr. Brookins, I want to be like the other kids. And I said, what do you mean? He said, Mr. Brookins, I want to learn how to read. And Malcolm Mitchell. When I scored a touchdown, they either probably put my name in the newspaper, people probably tell me good job all around town. But when I finished one book, no one ever said anything. So which one am I more likely to repeat? Find out more information and register for the 2024 Science of Reading Star Awards ceremony at amplify.com slash Star Awards celebrations. That's amplify.com slash Star Awards celebration, all one word. We have this vast knowledge base out there, but how do we get it out to people that need it? This is Susan Lambert, and welcome to Science of Reading, the podcast from Amplify, where the science of reading lives. We've officially wrapped up season seven, and season eight is right around the corner. In the meantime, we've got a trio of very special conversations that I can't wait to bring to you. The first is with foundational reading expert, Dr. Nina Saha. After getting her master's in educational neuroscience and her PhD in special education, Dr. Saha created the Reading Research Recap. Through this resource, Dr. Saha curates and disseminates the most critical reading research. As you'll hear in this conversation, this is no easy task. Dr. Saha has been regularly combing through more than 60 academic journals. On this episode, we talk about just how challenging it is for educators to keep up with research, and Dr. Saha lays out her vision for a better system. I hope you'll be inspired by this conversation. Well, Nina, thank you so much for joining us on today's episode. We're thrilled to have you. Thank you for having me. I'm honored to be here. A huge fan of your work, Susan. Same. I think we're in this together and we're going to we're going to talk a little bit about um, having this common theme of research translation. Um, but before we get there, we would love if you could tell our listeners just a little bit about yourself. And and actually, we'll, we'll try to hit two things, right? Like so you became interested in literacy and you have a passion for science. So I think there's there's two threads there. Yeah, there certainly is. So it's kind of funny because I cannot remember a time when I did not know about science. My family has a huge background in it. So kind of going, you know, way back, my great grandfather on my father's side is a famous Indian scientist, Meghnad Saha. He came up with this ionization equation. So it bears his name. It's the Saha ionization equation. And I'm learning a lot more about it right now, but <laughs> basically he combined different elements, disparate elements across different fields of science and could tell you – so I found this like poetic way of describing it. It's what is the weight of a sunbeam. So he could tell you like the chemical composition of the sun from this equation. And what's amazing is that they did it just by – you know, he did it just by like thought, right? There were no sort of telescopes or things that he used. It was just like combining these things. So 
he was nominated for the Nobel. He never got it, but he was elected into, you know, the fellow of the Royal Society, FRS, which is like what Newton and all of those. Right. So, wow. Yeah. Kind of crazy story that I'm rediscovering now. Like I always knew we had this famous science ancestor and, um, but more immediately, you know, both my parents are scientists. My dad since passed away, but he was a physicist. My mom's a biologist. And funny story about my mom, she has two PhDs. So her first one was in history and it was on the history of science, but she liked the science so much that she switched over to become a biologist. Two PhDs. Wow. that That's a big thing. <laughs> right. Doctor, doctor. <laughs> so where, how did that put you in the world of literacy then if, if you come from this, oh, background of science? Well, I think I kind of rebelled, you know, when it's so much science growing up, I had, you know, I was one of those children that just learned to read kind of naturally. And so language came easy to me. I always loved words and word origins and vocabulary. Mm. And I think that was, you know, not to blame my parents, parenting is hard, but I think that it was a little bit overlooked. Everything was kind of math and science in our household. And so I kind of, you know, stayed away from science for a bit. I'll tell you how I came back to it, but loved literature and went to a school that was um, School of the Arts and, you know, focused on reading and stuff. And so, you know, one of my first jobs out of college was being a special education teacher. And so I had to teach students who are ninth and 10th grade with severe reading difficulty. So really persistent um, dyslexia. They were reading at maybe a second and third grade level. And I was trained. Luckily, we had a principal who was really kind of aware of the science at the time. I got trained in the Wilson Just Words program. Okay. Implemented it with fidelity. And some of the students, you know, did great and others still didn't. And this mm -hmm. was, you know, this question of what's going on. And I knew, you know, we I always had that scientific background. So I was thinking, mm -hmm. what could be happening here? Why did some do great and some not? Now we know from the science, or I guess it was always known. I just didn't know that there's a group of, you know, really, they call them treatment resistors that are, you know, it's really hard to figure out what to do for them. Mm -hmm. And so I was really interested in that. And two reasons kind of led to me going back to school and getting my master's in educational neuroscience, interested in figuring out what, why that program didn't work for them. What was I doing wrong? How could we help them? And also kind of, you know, on a sad personal note, my dad had passed away I was kind of like thinking, you know, maybe it's time. I think people could relate to this. Like when you lose someone, you kind of go back and you want to figure out, you know, who they were more and like all those questions you didn't have. And so I turned kind of back to science in a way mm. and kind of came full circle. So so you did your master's, but you also went went beyond your master's, right? So what what happened in that process of, you know, what did you learn in that master's program and then what brought you to a doctoral program? Yeah, it's a great question. So I was really fascinated at the time. And I think a lot of people were and maybe still are with, you know, these beautiful fMRI images. Yeah. And if, you know, the listeners don't know, fMRI just stands for functional magnetic resonance imaging. May have gotten that wrong, but something along those lines where you put a kid in the scanner and you can see these, you know, areas where their brain light up. And there's yeah. The thought at the time that this would have, you know, it's going to revolutionize education, like educational neuroscience. We're going to combine what we know about the brain, figure out why, you know, those treatment resistors, those kids that I was tasked with teaching, why they weren't learning. And it was really interesting, but I learned, you know, at the time, which is why I got my master's in educational neuroscience, but I was, you know, it still felt a little bit far removed from the classroom where I came from. 
-hmm. You know, we don't put kids in scanners to see if they can't read. We can just listen to them read out loud, right? We know from behavioral, so evidence, I should say, and behavioral here, I just mean, you know, their behavior of reading out loud. Yeah. So I looked at different doctoral programs. I ended up choosing one at Vanderbilt with um, Lori Cutting because she had this amazing lab that had behavioral research as well as neuroscience. So I got to see what I liked and I quickly focused in more on the behavioral part of it. Mm -hmm. That's interesting. And it was during this time, was it during your time at Vanderbilt that you actually thought, hey, I'm going to start this thing called the Reading Research Recap? Actually, it was a little later. But was it? Yeah. Oh, yeah. okay. Tell us about that. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think the seeds of it started there because I had a son, you know, I became a mom like the second year in my program and my son actually had um, language delays. Okay. And here I was trying to figure out, you know, I knew a lot about reading, but I didn't know about language delay and I'm, you know, have access to cutting edge research and, you know, researchers who know about this, but I still felt lost. And it's like, if I feel this way, I can't imagine, you know, what parents who aren't enmeshed in like the research world, how they feel. So it's like, I started thinking about science translation and access and issues of that. And the recap started, it's kind of an f- interesting story. So I wasn't set on academia and part of my research at Vanderbilt um, resulted in a new measure for K2 text. So we have lots of, you know, readability formulas or Lexiles are great for, you know, three through eight market leaders, but we don't have a whole lot in that early reader space focused on decoding. Mm -hmm. And so we created a measure, we published some initial validation evidence on it. And I was really interested in seeing if I could take that and productize it. I wasn't sure we could, but I wanted to see if there's a way to make it useful for parents, teachers, and sort of matching, finding books. Mm -hmm. And so I didn't go into academia. I ended up starting my own company, Elemento. And as part of Elemento is when I started the recap, I was listening to a podcast actually about Substacks, you know, Substack, the company where you, you could like create a newsletter super easily. And I was like, well, if I were to create a newsletter, what would it be on? And I was like, well, research comes out all the time and there's no easy way to stay on top of it as a doc student. Yeah. So that's where it came from. Okay. I got to stop because I have to take a a little bit of a turn. It's so interesting for you to have said, well, because I'm a mom and I had a son that had issues with language because Mm -hmm. there's so many of us. There are so many of us in this field that come into this field for some very similar reasons. Um, because of a child that struggles. Yeah. And you don't, I think it hits you, you know, it becomes so personal when you have, when it's that close to you. Cause like I said, like language was always really easy for me. So I'm like, where did this child come from? Is he mine? (laughs) Like I had no clue how to help him. Mm. So to feel that helpless, I don't know. So yeah, that's part of the impetus too, is like, how do we get, we have this vast knowledge base out there, but how do we get it out to people that need it? Yeah. And, and the other thing that I thought was really interesting, and I'm, I'm finding this more and more is that it's teachers really struggle and probably parents and others too, with understanding the difference between language and reading And I wouldn't even say difference, but how important this idea of language is to to reading development. Oh my gosh, yes. And I even came late. You know, it's 
to that idea, right? Reading is mapping what you know about the oral language to print. And I didn't know a whole lot about oral language or alphabet, you know, and I, I learned a lot in the process and seeing the activities that the therapist did with Alex about what can you do to help a child learn, you know, to use their words. And, you know, mm -hmm. he turned out fine. He was in the like seventh percentile when they tested him at first and then caught up to his peers. Early intervention, Tennessee, we were in Tennessee. It works. Uh, it's amazing. Mm, shout out. Early intervention works. That is, that's so wise. So, so for those listeners that uh, don't understand what we're talking about with re the reading research recap. So the reading research recap was a, a newsletter that you actually pushed out that what you did was you scanned the most current research related mm -hmm. to, to reading and you then sort of translated it, sort of what we're trying to do on this podcast, you translated it for you know, normal people to, to be able to read. <laughs> I tried to translate it. So full, full disclosure, I still struggle. And I think the field does with translation as they yeah. should. Yeah. I have not seen a good example. We have examples out there. Well, we could talk about this later. I'm sure we'll get to it too, but I did curate. So what I did was focus really on dissemination, right? Getting rid of that hurdle of you know, there's so many journals out there, which are the quote unquote, good peer reviewed journals with high impact factors, because there's hundreds, right? But if you do this yeah. for a while, you start to see, you recognize where, you know, the leaders in the field are publishing and there's a handful, maybe about 50 or 60. And you do you want me to talk about my process? Like, Oh, oh that I, I, yeah, I would love to. Let's do it now. So what I did is I signed up for journal alerts. A lot of people don't know you could go to the journal homepage, sign up for like an RSS, you know, and they'll alert you when a new journal's out. Now, some make it pretty complicated and they only do like table of contents alerts once there's an issue put together. Okay. So it was so it's kind of hard because I had to combat, you know, like – kind of triage. I get all these emails a day from these journals, but I have to make sure like I haven't, you know, seen them before. And then I also do Google Scholar alerts. Okay. So if listeners don't know this, you can go to Google Scholar, type in keywords, and it'll kind of give you even like web pages, dissertations that come out with that. But I'd have to say a lot of it isn't great. What I did was take all this sort of like grunt work out of, you know, compiling what I thought as someone in the field would be interesting to other researchers, teachers, parents. Yeah. So when you just said that there's like 50 or 60, do you, uh, journals, do you literally go in and subscribe for an alert to each I one? I did. <laughs> Isn't that crazy? It's so crazy. It is crazy. And Susan, sometimes it gets to me, you know, there's some days because I've been doing this for three years now and it was weekly when I first started. So there's pros and cons to that, whereas now it's kind of monthly. But here's the thing. Like right now, I used to do like summaries or copy the abstract or give something so they wouldn't have to click out of the page just to make it easier. Now I just kind of list the articles and people by a heading. So I should say the reading research recap was acquired by Metametrics. Elemento was acquired by Metametrics and the recap was an asset that they acquired. And so I continued that through them. And you can sign up through, um, if you go to lexilethehub.lexile.com, you can sign up to get on the monthly version now, of the, which is the only version. Okay. A lot of people still go to Substack and try and sign up, but like that one's discontinued. So don't oh, go to that. That's good so to know. 
Yeah. And we could, I'm sure we could put those in the we, notes. Yep. We can put a link in the show notes for sure. And so what I do now is I take one study that I think has, you know, relevance to the current debates that are going on or to the classroom and I'll do a deep dive and then I'll just link other ones that I think are really important under headings like phonics, phonological awareness, comprehension, et cetera. Okay. And if I was a teacher listening to this, I'd be like, well, no wonder we don't have access to anything. No wonder I don't know what the latest findings are because to even think about doing that process. Oh my gosh, I know. It's, we have so many problems and I think about this all the time. Like how do we, and I, I've listened to a lot of your, the podcast that you've hosted and the guests on the shows talking about, you know, this medical model. And I think people, you know, I just listened to Claude Goldenberg and he was talking, you know, say people are saying they don't want to hear it being compared to that, but there are some things we can learn. There are some great things and these associations that exist for translating, you know, synthesizing, translating, like the American Heart Association takes the research and puts it into, you know, standards of care that, here's what you do based on it. You know, I, I think Claude had mentioned a few too, like AERA and, you know, the What Works Clearinghouse exists, but it's, you know, there's, I'm putting together a talk for the reading league where I'm like, kind of like thinking through like these different things right now. Yeah. There's just not a good way for, for teachers. And, and so because of that, resorting to social media, which isn't the best way to get what you need to get because who knows who's right and who knows who isn't right. And exactly. Cause you have to look at the full body or you're like cherry picking stuff. If you're going to social media and the person with sort of the biggest megaphone wins or whoever has the most interesting way of presenting it. And it's not great. Um, and I know a lot of researchers, you can make the argument, you know, it's an improvement because researchers now are tweeting and talking about their own research, but we need a more concerted effort. There needs to be, you know, a bunch of researchers that come together and, you know, kind of hash it out. It can't just be single ones here and there and following because you have the same problem. It's like, who do you follow? And you have to follow all these things. And yeah, yeah, I don't know. It's just overwhelming. And then your social media feeds get as overwhelming as what it sounds like to sign up for 50 or 60. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so that you can find out what the new articles are. Oh, all right. Well, let's, let's, let's take a couple of steps back. And, and so yeah. you said that you look through to find maybe what's most relevant. How do you think about and decide which articles you want to bring to both the reading research recap or then that you want to summarize a little more deeply? It's a great question. And I don't have, you know, it's hard to sort of create, you know, a checklist of like, here's what I look for. Some are sort of obvious given, you know, I'm covering one that's coming out on new research on decodable versus non-decodable texts in K3 mm-hmm. struggling readers. And I'm not going to give away, you guys are going to have to sign up and see what the result was. <laughs> but um, I mean, that's an obvious one to cover because even if there isn't a clear cut, you know, here's what they found, people are going to be talking about it anyways. So yeah. I want to kind of join, you know, guide that conversation if I can, you know, I follow social media too. And I see what people are talking about and try and choose what's relevant. Other times there could be one that I think that 
I covered one on comprehension and it was just a beautiful design where I thought like they, they did a really good job. It was July's one about um, Bayesian network meta-analysis. And I won't go into it here because people can watch it, but I love the design and it answered a question that couldn't be answered in a different way. And it was really good. But I... I try not to cherry pick because I think that is the problem with social media is like you, you're presenting one paper absent of the context. So I try and put those links at least mm -hmm. below for people who are interested. If it's one of those 60 journals that I think are good and you know other people think are good because they're publishing and I'm the leading researchers, then I'll put the link there. I usually don't discriminate much about posting a link, but mm -hmm. choosing the one to do a deep dive on is tough because <laughs> yeah. sometimes I'll like almost get to the end of one and then another article comes out and is like, nope, I have to cover this other one because it's this has more relevance. So what does that entail once you decide, okay, this is the one that I'm going to dive into? Well, wait a minute. Before, I, okay. before you answer that, I have to say something to our listeners. Um, because when you talked about the article that you did in the July and you mm -hmm. said, oh, it was such a cool design, mm. you know, you're a true scientist when your <laughs> eyes light up when, when you talk about the design of a study. So that's an aside. But um, that's true. <laughs> once you decide what's the process you actually go through then to, to dig in to really understand the article. Yeah, it's a great question. So I read it multiple times and some, you know, Googling if I don't understand stuff. I think, you know, people think that if, once you have your PhD, you know everything. No, there's, you realize how much you don't know. <laughs> and so, and you want to be right. Like there's this burden, you know, if you're like a research broker, like knowledge broker in this field, like you have, you know, and I've had people comment back on stuff and you feel horrible, but it's like, it's part of the process and learning and, you know, you yep. can't know everything and, you do your best and you do your due diligence. So reading it multiple times, lots of highlighting, emailing the author, if I have questions, things I don't understand. And then trying to just pull out the like core story, right? Like why this, what was missing? I don't go into the methods a whole lot. I know I geeked yeah. out about the design of that last one, but <laughs> usually I don't because I don't think you know, one study, and I, I should be very clear about this, one study should not change your whole practice. Science is very much about the body of research. And I try and reiterate that. And when it, this is crucial to translation, when it comes to the implication part or the classroom takeaways, I use hedging words because science is about, you know, Claude said this too in his, I just listened to it, so I keep referencing that one. <laughs> is about skepticism, which is true. You need to be skeptical. And I use those hedging words that the researchers use in their paper. You know, these results suggest, these are yeah. initial results. And I try and use quotes directly from the paper mm -hmm. instead of putting my own interpretation sometimes. Yeah. that's. I think that's really important, what you call the hedging words. Um, and this idea that one study doesn't prove prove something, right? Exactly. And we have to be careful about the body of evidence, more and more and more learning about it. Yeah. On social media, you'll see people, is there any research on that? Someone will post a link to a paper. Great. But what do the other five papers on it say, right? Like, what do we know and how do we synthesize across a body of research where maybe there's two RCTs and they found different results? Right. We don't really have a good mechanism for that in education, I would argue, 
Whereas in, I've been reading a lot about in medicine, my sister's a doctor and she's, you know, shown me different resources, nonprofit ones such as associations, but also commercial programs where they have a whole system. Okay, what do you do when two things disagree? What do we say? Because you still have to practice. You still have to mm -hmm. treat people. You can't just kind of, you know, leave it unanswered. Yeah. There's something else too that I'd like to highlight because I feel this responsibility as well. And that is those of us that are trying to understand and translate this for teachers and, and practitioners that are trying to do the work every single day. It's, it's really important for us to be precise and yeah. as accurate as possible. And it's a real responsibility, isn't it? Yes. It, yes, it can wear on you because you know, you'll you'll have those middle of the night thoughts. Oh my gosh, I I overstated something, and someone's gonna. But I, you know, it's just part of you created and built this audience. Like it it comes with the territory, and people. Some people have to do it. You have to do it. We have to give. There's no good solution out there right now, yeah. and so we just have to keep going on with it. What kind of feedback have you received on yours? Both like may, maybe two different kinds, right? Like so, there's the. The folks that are like, thank you so much for helping us do this. I'm, and I would imagine there is the, mm, I think you got that wrong kind of feedback. Yeah. And actually, there's been very little of the latter. Um, but I appreciate it. So I kind of stepped out of my comfort zone and covered a paper on bilingual students. And I used the wrong wording and someone pointed that out. And I was glad they did because I learned about it and you know we corrected it but you're right like most of it's very positive thank you for what you're doing but i always you know when people are overly effusive it's like you know it's you almost wish they were more skeptical and like that they could critique because you know i'm not right all the time and i think this really should be more of a group effort i would love it if you know researchers joined in and piled on with their thoughts or their take on it cuz it just makes it that much better yeah. And I'm thinking of like next steps, like how do we do this? And I, I keep coming back to this idea of like a better platform where researchers, you know, can pipe in and give their opinion, but yet we have some core principles we agree on. Hmm. So still thinking through all of that. But the initial response, you know, going back to your question, I kind of knew I was onto something because when I created that Substack, you know, three years ago now within... I think I did one post about it in the Science of Reading Facebook group. And I checked my phone and like hundreds of signups within an hour and then hundreds more. It's like, wow. wow. And I was like, this is amazing. And then it grew, you know, within I think a year to about like 4,000. I had different tiers at that time. I was, one was paid, one wasn't. And, but it grew on its own. There was definitely interest. So it was sort of like when we started the podcast too, we think this is a good idea. We're not sure. Let's try it and see what happens. And there was such an appetite in the field for understanding the, re the research and from the researchers themselves. So that says something about our education community, doesn't it? Oh, it does. Well, what I love also about your podcast, hearing the people behind it, couching in a story too is so wonderful. I love that's the format of this podcast accomplishes something that I think that the recap doesn't quite, it's very technical, clinical almost, but like the videos of me now talking about it, I kind of put in some interpretation, but I love it. But I want to bring up one thing. I have this, I'm showing it 
um, on the screen, but we can also put it in the show notes. I just read this survey of evidence in education for schools. It's this descriptive report. And one of the big things, it was um, a bunch of researchers out of the Center for Research Use in Education, which is a partnership between University of Delaware, it looks like University of Minnesota and University of Pennsylvania. But one of the key things is it's all about how teachers and administrators use research in schools. Okay. It's fascinating. You will love it. As a research broker, you know, disseminator of knowledge, there's so many interesting takeaways, but um, teachers really want to connect with researchers was one of the key takeaways. They want, and some of the, the, you know, the, what they end up translating is knowledge that they know through that research, like they have some sort of connection so professional development was a huge one, but also I just thought it was really interesting that there's this really big need on the behalf of teachers and admin that they they want this, but there's just not a good mechanism yet. Hmm, that's interesting. We will look forward to putting that in the show notes and me reading it myself. So thank you for introducing yeah, us today. Yeah. You know, you talked about the differences a little bit between dissemination and translation. How do you see those two things different? And, and you sort of landed a little bit more on dissemination, I think. Yeah, I would, technically speaking, the recap, I like to think of it more as dissemination. Translation is very hard to do, I think, as an individual. You really need like an institution or a group of researchers, in my opinion, to arrive at that. And then you also need, this, which is what this report shows, local people on the scene, sort of a local context for translation, because there's translation broadly speaking, but then it's like, well, how do you suit it to your local population with the resources you have, you know, the funds available for PD? So I think dissemination and translation are very different. And like I said earlier, I try and use the language in the paper. Most papers have an implications for classroom section. Right. And I use the language from that, which is written by, you know, the authors and the researchers. And so it is very kind of skeptical and hedging, which is appropriate, right? Because once you've done a study, the next thing you want to do is replicate it, you know, maybe in a larger sample or scale it up. You know, the IES has these different grants for scaling up something in a classroom and making sure that it works across, that it can generalize to different students. And there's this whole, you know, there's also implementation science, which is this whole um, area or discipline of science, if you want to call it, that takes, you know, these results and tries to get them to work in the school. You know, why, how can we can get something in a small intervention with a researcher who does it, you know, and we get these results, but then when we try and scale it up to school, it doesn't work, right? And that talks about the different levels, you know, the administration, the school level, and like, how do we actually implement it? And that's related to translation. I think that's something that is necessary, but I've also been talking with a lot of researchers lately and having you know, this exchange between the the sort of gold standard of randomized controlled experiments. And I'm, I have to say, this might be an unpopular opinion, but I'm I'm slightly changing my views on it. And there's this book that I recommend to everyone called The Book of Why. And it talks about causal inference, which is how do we know things are due to a certain mm -hmm. cause, right? Mm -hmm. Cause and effect. And 
there are several scientific disciplines that have never used a randomized control trial. And one of the great examples in the book is smoking and lung cancer. There was never a randomized control trial on that, if I'm correct. But we know from other evidence, hmm. right? And so I don't want to confuse teachers in this time because, you know, I feel like we're finally kind of understanding the importance of being a critical consumer of research. And we want, we want to see those RCTs and we, we're asking for certain things. But I still say that's great. But at the same time, let's not devalue all this like theory, the role of theory in getting to that RCT. And if we can't do an mm -hmm. RCT, we still have a lot of theory that we can rely on. Mm -hmm. It is a really good point and, uh, about this idea of translation and implementation. Because just because somebody says, this is the thing that you should do with your students, doesn't mean it's just that easy to do that yeah. thing with your students, right? Agree. Implementation is hard. Yeah. I remember as a teacher being trained and, you know, you can do everything right and it still doesn't work. Yeah. And to, to just sort of bring this back to what does this mean for teachers? Hey, teachers or, or educators out there right now, when you're feeling overwhelmed and you can't figure out how to find the evidence or some evidence guess what? We're affirming for you yes. that there's no easy way to do it. And, and we have to figure out how to solve that for them. So. hundred percent. It's not on them. This is, I feel like more of a systemic um, problem. It's not the teachers who should be doing this, but yes, no, they should not feel like everyone's overwhelmed with this problem, I think. Yeah. And, and then maybe a shout out to those folks that are listening that are researchers or have some kind of um larger role in the system of education help us help us solve help nina and i solve this problem yes we need to create you know our association or whatever you want to call it like this band of research and we don't have to agree on everything but i think it's really important to point out what we do agree on and then have you know here's what we're not sure of and then an individual, like they can weigh in on why I don't agree with this part. You know, it's like the Supreme Court when they have their memos where it's like, you know, some dissent and the dissenting argument, like, let's just arrange and group the knowledge in a way that's more digestible for teachers. That makes sense. Um, so while we're on the topic, what, what kind of tips do you have for listeners then to either find, first be able to find some information like this? and then be able to evaluate that information. A any tips? Yeah. Um, it's, a hard, it's hard given what I've said before, but <laughs> I mean, if you are, there are some great practitioner, you know, focus journals, you know, like the reading teacher and the reading league has a great practitioner focused where they yeah. kind of do the synthesis in concert with the researchers, you know, they take that full kind of perspective in. I think that's a great example. Obviously the recap, if you don't want to sign up for those journal alerts, but maybe you don't want to wait, you know, until the month when it comes, you know, the day comes out for that month. So you can feel free to go through those journals, sign up for some of those alerts. You don't have to do all of them, but I think, you know, just even getting a steady stream, you kind of know what researchers, you start to learn about it just through, exposure, I should say. You don't have to read every article in detail mm -hmm. um, to start getting an awareness. Let's see, other tips and tricks. You know, I feel strongly that 
teacher prep programs should have a short course, maybe not a full semester, ideally a full semester on, you know, causal inference, the scientific method, how to evaluate research, because I do think this is one of the few areas where the end consumer teachers or people putting this in practice, like in medicine, doctors are trained in this and we don't, we're just still struggling to get the research-based information, like the content, not like right. how to evaluate research into teacher prep programs. So I think we're still far from this. I've been thinking about this a lot though, Susan, and I'm, I'm trying to run some ideas by researchers to come up with like, you know, it's kind of like a smell test. Like what are the core things that a teacher could look for without knowing about stats or methods from a paper, right? Like first, check the population. If the population is completely different, this paper probably doesn't apply. But if there's other that have that population that matches your local one, okay. You know, like I'm trying to come up with that, but it's mm -hmm. hard. <laughs> I don't know if it's going to work out. I'm trying some things right now, so we'll see. Well, that's awesome. We I, we love that you're thinking hard about this. Do you have any any like vision for the future? Like if you could look mm. five years from now, what would your vision look like? Yeah, that? I do. I always have that. Like that's my problem though. I think it's too, <laughs> I've been, you know, kind of like go, go, go in this field. And like, I'm, I'm really impatient too. It's a problem of mine. I want to see this, but I would love, you know, if there's researchers out there, I'm going to, and you hear this, like, I'm going to call on them. I would love to create. So medicine has this app called up to date. And my sister told me about it. And it's basically, it started by a doctor. He um, was a nephrologist, so studied the kidneys. And he put his textbook on a CD-ROM. This was like, I don't know, 30 years ago. People thought he was crazy, right? But then it slowly gained traction. They added different sub-disciplines. And it became this, um, it's an app that answers clinical questions. So it has like standards of care and mm -hmm. My sister uses it several times a day to check things, right? They right. do the hard work. They sit around. They have like eight reviewers for a certain thing. And they, it got acquired by a Dutch company. I'm going to butcher the pronunciation, but like Walters Kluyer or something. And But people should really look up. There's a short four-minute YouTube video about it and its origin story. And my vision is, even if I'm not involved, I would love to see something like that for education, right? Like people, mm -hmm. I think will pay for a good product that's maintained. You need that, you need some, um, nothing exorbitant, but to pay the researchers for their time and their involvement. And back to the editing process, sorry, the one thing I didn't say is sometimes they'll argue, you know, eight hours just on a single sentence. How do we get this to, you know, so it's right. Talk Going back to, you know, that mm -hmm. burden of like, we want to make sure we give the right information for teachers. So that's my vision. I would love, I'm not sure if I'm going to work on that, you know, immediately, but I'm going to keep talking to researchers and see if they'll get on board with an idea like that. And, you know, also nitpick it, figure out the flaws and what might, you know, make it not work. But I think we, we kind of, we need something. There's still a huge gap. Yeah. So essentially an app that a teacher could get on and say, I'm having this issue. What should I, what should I do about it? Wouldn't that be powerful? Yeah. And almost like in a sort of a Wikipedia sense of here's what, you know, 99% of researchers agree on what we know about phonics. Here's yeah. what we're not sure of, yeah. but promising. And here's what we still have no idea about. Hmm. And I think the power behind it though is the social 
element. Like if you have all these researchers, yeah, there may be some who disagree, but we have to figure out what we agree on. Cause right now it's like, mm. I don't know, there's not a consensus and that's problematic. Yeah, for sure. Well, any final thoughts for our listeners or any final, just general Nina thoughts? Oh man, you don't want to go there. <laughs> so many general, <laughs> I could start talking about a bunch of different things. Um, I will say one thing actually. So what's interesting, actually tying this back to Meghnad Saha, my great grandfather, he was a great scientist, but he also was very much involved in disseminating science and translating it. So he started a journal, Science and Culture, and it's still in existence today. He also started, he was an institution builder, He's the Saha Institute of Nuclear Physics. He talked a lot with Nehru, you know, the prime minister and people in government to try and get these things changed. And I didn't know this when I was, when I started the recap, you know, I kind of feel like I'm in a small way following some of his, like in his footsteps of like, it's not enough to do the science. You have to make sure that it gets out there too. And I think I like that part better in a way. And he actually in a, it was an upset election. He got elected to parliament too and tried to cha- modernize India through science. Um, not all of mm-hmm. his views were correct. You know, time has shown that some of his thoughts were wrong. And, but, you know, he tried and he did his best. So that's what I'm going to try and do is follow in his footsteps. Clearly, you're doing that because, um, we just appreciate what you're what you're attempting to do and sharing your vision with us. And like I said, we we hope that there's folks out there right now that are going to call you and say, Nina, I, I so. want to be with you in this work. So I hope so. Well, thank you for letting me talk about this, Susan. And I'm a, like I said earlier, a huge fan of your work. It's had a real impact in the field. Well, thank you. Thank you for joining us. And we will get our listeners links to all those fun resources you shared with us. Um, but thank you again for joining us. Of course. Bye. Thanks so much for listening to my conversation with Dr. Nina Saha, foundational reading expert and creator of the Reading Research Recap. Check out the show notes for links to follow her work and to access some of the items we've discussed. Let us know what you thought of Dr. Saha's vision in our Facebook group, Science of Reading the Community. Science of Reading the Podcast is brought to you by Amplify. For more information on how Amplify leverages the science of reading, go to amplify.com slash CKLA. Be sure to catch all our new episodes by subscribing to Science of Reading the Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. And while you're there, please rate us and leave us a review. It'll help more people find the show. Next time, we've got another very special episode for you. We're going to be joined by Dr. Reed Lyon, acclaimed neuroscientist and specialist in learning disorders. Dr. Lyon spent years working at the highest levels of government on promoting literacy, and he joined us to talk about his career and his recent publication, 10 Maxims, what we've learned so far about how children learn to read. It was done in a way to, from my perspective, do two things. One is to provide a more user-friendly understanding of what's required in reading and why difficulties occur. And equally important is to help people develop a common language so that when they see children having difficulty, they can say, is it phonemic awareness? Is it word recognition? 
Is it because they're reading slowly? Is it because their semantic vocabulary background is limited? And talk to each other using that information in those terms. Dr. Lyon also explains why, when it comes to the discourse around literacy instruction, he fears history may repeat itself. You know, if we go down that same road of ideological uh, emphasis rather than scientific evidence, we're no closer to a science of reading than if we just returned to the 60s. That's next time on another special episode of Science of Reading, the podcast. Thank you again for listening.